about Psalm 45. Okay, because uh, there are at least two or three unique features about this psalm. And the first feature is that two personal notes are inserted by the writer into the psalm. Okay. Usually you just have a psalm that praises God or talks about something regarding the nation of Israel. But here you have two personal notes inserted by the reader. And in these notes, he tells us his intention for the psalm. So look at verse 1. It starts that way and ends that way. Look at verse 1. The writer says, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. Just tell us what the theme of this thing is. And he says, I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is in is the pen of a ready writer. And so here he's, we see that he's going to uh, talk about the king, and he gives us his intentions for writing the psalm. He gives you that up front. Okay? Then at the end of the psalm, verse 17, he says, here's my second intention. First intention is to write about the king. Okay? Here's my second intention. Look at verse 17. I'll make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. So that's his second intention. Okay? So here we see these personal notes thrown in. The rest of it's going to be dealing with the theme itself. Okay? Now the second thing you'll notice in Psalm 45 is that it is called in your superscription. You'll see that. It says, to the chief musician, set to the lilies. Set to the lilies. Uh, you may have a Hebrew word there, but it's translated, set to the lilies. That means this psalm, the lyrics in this psalm, are set to a certain tune called the lilies. If you look in your hymn book, you'll see a lot of lyrics. And guess what? These lyrics are set to certain tunes. Maybe by some famous, you know, uh, who? Bach or, you know, Beethoven or something like that has written this tune. And these modern words are set to that tune. So, you have some words that are set to a marching tune. Therefore, it becomes a marching song. Well, the tune, the lilies, is a love song. Okay? And what we think is that this psalm is a wedding song. A wedding song. For the king and his new bride. Now, we know that because there are other songs that are set to the tune of the lilies, written back in this day, not in the Bible, just secular songs. And the words are very similar to wedding songs written during this era. So this is probably a wedding song for the, the king and his uh, new bride. Okay. And when you say, well, who's the king? Most commentators say the king is Solomon. It was a wedding song written by a psalmist who is the psalm? Who's writing this, by the way? Sons of Korah. Who were they? They were the singers in the temple. So this is a composition written by uh, Korah's sons, the singers in the temple, uh, for the king and his new wife. And most commentators believe that the king here is Solomon. Now I'm going to throw out a shocking uh, alternative. Okay. I'm not saying 100% this is right, but I want to give you a, a theory. 
I'm going to say the king, or possibly the king, is King Ahab, and the wife that he's marrying is Jezebel, the wicked witch of the north. Remember her? Now, but when this was written, if this is written for Ahab and Jezebel, you have to remember it was written before they became evil. There were great hopes for this king and his wife. And, of course, they let down the people, and Ahab becomes evil, and, of course, Jezebel. Now, let me show you why I think that's a possibility. Okay? So keep your fingers marked here, and I want you to turn to 1 Kings 16. Okay? 1 Kings 16. And this tells you who King Ahab married. When you get there, look it down at verse 29. First Kings 16, verse 29. Okay, so here's what it says. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria, that was in the north, 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he took a wife, Jezebel. And here's who she is. The daughter of Ethbaal the king of the Sidians, or the Phoenicians. Now, if your Bible says the Sidians, you will notice that there, you know that there are, there are twin cities in the Bible, and the twin cities are called Tyre and Sidon. Did you ever hear of Tyre and Sidon? Okay. Ethbaal was the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre. Tyre, Sidon, Sidon region. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Tyre. Now when you look back in your psalm, Psalm 45, and you look down at verse 12, it tells us who his new wife is. And notice who she is. She's called, in verse 12, the daughter of what? Tyre. So it could be that this is Ahab marrying Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Tyre. And you'll see that as we go through the verses. That's a possibility. Now, could it be Solomon? Yes. Because Solomon married 700 wives. <laughs> and certainly one of those could have been the daughter of, of Tyre. <laughs> so, uh, I'm just throwing out another option just to make you think. I figure this is sort of a not a real exciting song, so I throw something controversial out of it. Okay. Now, I have no idea what is true, but I... <laughs> I just figured I'd throw it out there. In any case, whether it's Solomon or Ahab, both of them were very bad kings, weren't they? And both of them fell into idolatry because of their wives. Solomon married these 700 women. These were all marriages of political convenience to form alliances with foreign countries and foreign kings. And his wives 
led him into idolatry. He became a very evil king, even though he started out on a right foot or a good foot. And it's the same with Ahab. Ahab's wife ended up bringing him down because she caused people to worship Baal. And remember, she was against the prophet Elijah. Remember that, that story? So, I'm not sure which one, but it's about a king. So, that I just threw that out for some fun. Okay, now, don't go and say street believes it's Ahab. Could be Ahab, but I don't know. Now, that means when we read the psalm, we need to understand at least a little bit about its historical context. The mistake that most people make, average lay people make, is when they read the psalms, they read them devotionally. As if they were written as devotions. They're not written as devotions, they're written as what? Psalms for history, recording things and telling how things were during those days. Other people, when they read the Psalms, they read them messianically. And that means they find Jesus in all the Psalms. And he's there. But no Jew reading Psalm 45 when it was originally written would have thought about Jesus because he hadn't been around for, not, wouldn't be around for 900 years. When they read it, they're thinking about the king. Okay. So, if we're going to read it the way the author intended, we're going to try to uh, read it in its historical context. Now, it's difficult to do that sometimes, and I'll tell you why. If you look at Psalm 45, you'll notice all the pronouns that are related to the king, and you'll notice this when we go through, are in capitals, capital letters. And when you have a capital letter, you assume they're talking about you know, God or Jesus. So, uh, not all translations have that, but like mine, which is a New King James translation, has capital letters, and that can really throw you. You think, well, are they talking about God? Are they talking about Jesus? And if you read some of the commentaries, the more popular commentaries, like Spurgeon's uh, commentaries on Psalms, he interprets the entire psalm uh, as referring to Jesus. And it throws us off when we do that. Okay, So, what we need to do, even though it has messianic applications, we need to look at it in its historical context. So here's how we're going to divide our psalm. Okay? We have a prologue in verse 1, which is the person, uh, you know, personal comments. And you have a postscript in verse 17, which is also his personal comments. Okay? But the psalm contains two stanzas. Okay? And the two stanzas are... Stanza number one, verses we'll call it verses one through nine, stanza number one of this song. And stanza number two would be verses 10 through 17. Okay? And it's a romantic song, probably a wedding song to the king. Okay, now first let's look at the personal interjections in verse one. Notice what he says. The psalmist writes, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. This means that he has this... Uh, moment of inspiration. He has an emotional moment where he is uh, has this heartfelt desire to write something about the king. That's what he's saying there. He says, I recite my composition concerning the king. He's the theme of this psalm. Now he's going to talk about the queen, but she's not the theme. The theme of the psalm is the king. He gets the full, most of the attention. And then he says this, my tongue is the pen of of a ready writer. In other words, as he has these thoughts, he starts vocalizing these thoughts, and immediately he grabs his pen, and he starts writing down these thoughts that are coming, just flowing, these thoughts are just 
flowing through his mind and these emotional feelings are flowing out of his heart and they bubble over and he gets his pen and he starts writing real quickly. Gives us an insight to what inspiration is like. How did somebody write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? This is how they did it. Suddenly they got a feeling, heartfelt feeling. They start thinking about a theme, a king. Suddenly these ideas and thoughts become flowing and they take out their pen and they start writing. And it ends up becoming an inspired book of the Bible. So it gives you some insight there. So now, let's look at uh, the content of the psalm, this first stanza. And notice verse 2. He says this about the king. You are fairer than the sons of men. Now, this is how people talked about a king. They said, remember when King Saul, they talked about, they wanted a king, and they chose King Saul. And it says about King Saul, you know, he was... A head taller than everybody. He was handsome. He had a chiseled profile. You know, he had blue eyes and blonde hair. He looked like Charlton Heston. You know, something like that. <laughs> so, uh, so here is how he talks about the about the uh, the king, and he says, "You are fairer than the sons of men." Uh, in the Hebrew, it says, "You are fairer, fairer. You're two times fairer than the sons of men. You're handsome." Okay. So he starts off bragging about the king in the psalms, and you're handsome. Grace is poured upon your lips. Notice it doesn't say that grace comes out of your lips, although they do. It's the grace that's poured upon your lips. You speak wisdom. This is why some people think that Solomon is the, the king here. You speak wisdom, and it's not a wisdom that comes from within. It's a wisdom that's poured out upon your lips. This is something that God has given you. Therefore, at the end of verse 2, God has blessed you. You are in a position of favor with God. You are in this covenant relationship with God, and you are receiving the blessing. Notice the therefore. There are two therefores in the psalm. This is if therefore number one. The first therefore is, hey, you're handsome, and guess what? You really can speak. You're blessed. Wouldn't you like to be able to be a great orator and be handsome at the same time. <laughs> you say, hey, you're blessed. So he's, his conclusion is, God has blessed you. Now look at verse 3. Now he gives the king an instruction. Gird your... Now notice the word you're there. You see that capital? That's why people would say Jesus. But don't just disregard capitals here. He's speaking to the, to the uh, king. Gird your sword upon your thigh. In other words, put on your... Gun belt, you know? O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. Now the only thing that you're lacking, King, is you have you don't have that that nice sword on your side. Wouldn't you like to have that sword with all those jewels there? Just put put that on and everything's gonna really look good. So he's telling him to get his sword. Get ready for battle. Okay? Now if God's on your side in your favor and you're gonna get ready for battle, you're gonna win this battle. So how many times have we seen sword in verse in, since we started the Psalms in the summer? Psalm 42, 43, 44, 45. We've all seen those words, the word sword in these Psalms. And so we see that the king was always a fighter. He was the one who had to lead the battle. Okay? And then he tells us about the king when he goes to battle. In your majesty ride prosperously because of truth. Because you have truth on your side. When you ride in the battle, you're going to prosper. And you're going to win the battle. 
because of humility. Because you realize you're not doing this in your own strength. It's God who's blessing you. And righteousness. You're standing for righteousness. The foreign nations do not stand for righteousness. You're standing for righteous living, and therefore you will you will succeed. Look at verse 5. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. So he's describing the king leading a battle, being favored by God, and indeed winning the battle. Uh, look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Now he's still talking about the king. Now this is the thing you have to get. He's still talking about the king. But what does he call the king? He says, your throne what? Oh God, he calls the king God. He said, what's going on here? Why does he call the king God? Because the king represents God on earth. And when the king acts, that's God acting. He is the one acting on behalf of God. So that was not unusual. They called judges God in the Old Testament. What does that mean? That meant when the judge rendered a decision, he was rendering God's decision. If you had asked God to render the decision, it would have been no different than the judge rendering the decision as long as he was fair and righteous and discerning in his decision. So, it's interesting that the king right here is called God. Okay? Now, look what else it says. In verse, at the end of verse 7. Because, first of all, look at verse, let's continue in verse 6 just for a second. Your throne, O God, he's talking to the king, is forever and ever. In other words, your dynasty will continue onward. The kingdom of Israel will last. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The other kings are not righteous, but the king of Israel is supposed to lead in righteousness. Now look at the end of verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. You see that? Therefore, God, talking to the king, your God, that's the heavenly father, has what? Anointed you. See, this is why people get confused when they read the Psalms, because they're, they can't figure these kinds of things out. Now notice, that's the second therefore, isn't it? Therefore, your God has anointed you. How do we know that this uh, king... Uh, is righteous. How do we know that he is in a place of favor? Because God has anointed him. He's anointed him. Notice that. Your God has anointed you. He's anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, has God anointed the king? How does the king get anointed? Through a prophet. The prophet anoints the king. The prophet anoints the king on behalf of God. <laughs> See, there are... It's, it's an amazing thing. It's, even though Samuel anoints David to be king, even though Samuel anoints Saul to be king, guess what? That represents God anointing the king. It represents that he is God's chosen person. So, we see that the king is anointed. He's anointed by a priest. Okay. Now look at verse 8. Verse 8. Your garments 
are scented with myrrh, aloe, and cassia. Well, when you're anointed, guess what happens? Pour that anointing oil on your hair, that long Jewish hair, and guess what happens? It throbs down and it gets on your garments. And your garments have an aroma to them. There's a fragrance to those garments. They smell nice. So the king is anointed. Now what is he anointed with? Does it say there? Myrrh, aloes, cassia. Uh, a couple of those items are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. And I want to show this to you because it shows you exactly what's happened. I want you to look over at Exodus 30 just for a moment. Okay. This will be the first time a couple of these things are mentioned. And when you find Exodus 30, go over to verse 22. Exodus 30 and verse 22. And this is God speaking to Moses. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses. And here's what he said. Take for yourself quality spices. What we just saw. 500 shekels of liquid myrrh. Half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon. 250 shekels. 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. 500 shekels of casia. We just saw that in another passage. According to the shekel of the sanctuary and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil. An anointment compound according to the art of the perfumer. It is, it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of the meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all of its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar and the incense, the altar burnt offering, its utensils, the labor, the base. You shall consecrate them, sanctify them, why? That they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint, look, Aaron and his sons. And when you do that, you'll be consecrating them. That they may minister to me. There's a purpose statement. It has to be, they have to be anointed so that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generation. It shall not be poured on a man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people, which means shall be put to death. So here we see this anointing oil, and we see over in uh, Psalms some of these things mentioned. And we see Aaron being anointed, and we see the tabernacle being anointed. Whatever is anointed with this is sanctified or consecrated to God. Now there were three kinds of people who were anointed in the Old Testament. The priest, the prophet, and the king. Here we see Aaron, the priest anointed. In Psalm 45, we see a king anointed with this oil. When he's anointed with the oil, that means he's what? Sanctified, set apart, consecrated for 
service to God. This represents God anointing him, even though it's being done by human hands. Now, where do these spices come from? It's very interesting where these spices come from. Look at verse 8. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they made you glad. Now what in the world are ivory palaces? Uh, ivory palaces were where the elites lived. Where the wealthiest of the wealthy lived. They lived in what they became known as ivory palaces. Remember there's a song called Ivory Palaces. I don't know the words to it, but it's a very old Christian song. Uh, J. Wilbur Chapman, back around 1900, was a great evangelist. Billy Sunday was his assistant before he became an evangelist. And Chapman preached on Psalm 45. And his song leader, uh, a guy named Charles Alexander, wrote a song called Ivory Palaces based on this, thinking that the ivory palaces are like heaven. Well, that's not really... He had it wrong, but... The ivory palaces were where where, where where rich people lived. And they were called ivory palaces because they took the tusk of elephants and used that ivory to put inlay, ivory inlay, on their walls and on their floors. And so when you walked in, it was like walking into an ivory palace. And that's where the rich people lived, and they probably funded or provided these very rare spices for the anointing oil. We also know that Solomon had his throne overlaid with ivory. Another reason why you see the ivory in Solomon connected. But we also know that Ahab had a palace of his own. You see that in the very last section on Ahab's life. Uh, and it's called an ivory palace. Amos tells us one day, says Amos, which is a prophet of doom, says one day God's going to judge the nation of Israel and he's going to destroy all the ivory palaces of the rich people. So here you see this ivory palace theme. So that's where that comes from. Now look at verse 9. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now, we see two classes of people here. You'll notice two kinds of women, two categories of women. First, king's daughters. Notice it's not king apostrophe S. Do you notice that? It's not a king who has a lot of daughters. These are a lot of kings who have a lot of daughters. And they're brought before the king of Israel and they're paraded before him. Why do you think that would? What's that all about? Well, I guess they want their daughters to marry the king. Or something like that. These are foreign kings whose daughters are brought before the king of Israel. And then he says, at your right hand stands the queen. Now this is the wife that he's going to have. In... Gold from Ophir. This is a quality of, of gold. And the queen always stood at the right hand or sat at the right hand of the king. Okay? So that stands in number one. 
Okay, now we go to stanza number two. Okay. Now that was sort of a transitional verse, verse nine, because the queen is introduced here. Now, this marriage to this queen, who's in the gold of Ophar in verse nine, is a uh, a political marriage. And uh, in this case, if this if he marries the queen of Tyre, which we're going to see back in verse twelve, that's who he marries. This was a political arrangement between the king of Israel and the king of Tyre. Now, I want you to know, remember, where Tyre is. Galilee is in the north. Okay? And then to the west of Galilee is the Mediterranean Sea. Right on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, northwest of Galilee, on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, is Tyre. And that's where the king of Tyre lives. By making a political alliance with him, Israel had access to the sea, to the seaports. By the king of Tyre making an alliance with the king of Israel, he had access to the eastern section, and where, so he could go through Israel, take his goods and go through Israel and distribute those goods further to the east. So he had access to the travel routes, to the commercial routes, to the caravan routes. And so this is going to be a political marriage. And that's what you need to see. So now we look at stanza number 2. We go to verse 10. And watch this. The psalmist says, Listen, O daughter, consider, and incline your ear. Forget your own people also, and forget your father's house. So these are instructions that are now given to this new queen. Just married to the king, or going to be married to the king, and she is being given instructions by the psalmist. Now, if stanza one was praising the king, because that's where the focus was, on praising the king, stanza two is on warnings or instructions to the queen. She needs to know how she should be a queen. And the first thing she is told is what? First of all, incline your head. Listen closely. Listen up. See that? Number one, forget your own people. And not only forget your own people, forget what? Forget your father's house. Okay? So what we have is a new relationship is forming. Her loyalty is no longer to her people, Tyre, and no longer to her father. Her her. Allegiance now will be to Israel and to her husband, the king of Israel. A new relationship is forming. The relationship between a daughter and a father is being broken. And a relationship is being established between a wife and her husband. And the relationship with the king of Israel, his relationship is being broken from being a son to his father to being a husband to a new wife. So this is a new relationship that is forming here. And the reason this new relationship is forming is for political reasons and that they will have children. So now the new relationship is their husband and wives and wives and they will be parents and they will have children who then will one day grow up and rule the dynasty. And that's what we have happening here. Look at verse 12. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Probably a wedding gift. 
maybe a dowry. The rich among the people will seek your favor, the psalmist says to the woman. Uh, the king's friends are going to be your king, your friends. The king's rich supporters are going to be your rich supporters. And so you're not losing something. Yes, you're moving from your kingdom to this new kingdom, but you're not losing something, you're gaining something. You're gaining a lot of wealth. Verse 14 says, She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, or companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. And so the woman and her entourage comes and enters into the king's palace and this new relationship is formed. Look at verse 16. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons. That's where your emphasis is going to be now. On children. Whom you shall make, look, princes in all the earth. So the goal of this marriage is the success, of the ongoing success of a future dynasty. And they are to be fruitful and multiply, and they are to have children, and the dynasty then can go on forever and ever. Now, uh, in nations where there are monarchs, we see this, don't we? Very important that you have an heir to the throne. Now, in Great Britain, we have a queen. Uh, Great Britain's a little different because it's more of an honorary position, but because yeah, they have a parliament now that runs the government. But that's not how it always was. And the king and the queen were very important. And guess what they needed to make sure of? That they had a son. They had a son. Why did they need a son? How about they had a daughter? Would that be good? No, that wouldn't be good. They needed a son to carry on. Hey, remember, I'm Henry the Eighth. I am. You know why he divorced his wife, don't you? He got married to the widow next door. <laughs> because she couldn't bear him a son, only produced daughters. So he divorces, marries again, and guess what? She doesn't produce sons either. And marries again. Sons are important. That is what the goal is, is to have sons. So in Great Britain, even though that's more of an honorary or uh, whatever you want to call it, kind of throne, it's still important that there's an heir. And that's why when there's a marriage between whoever it was, was it Prince William or one of them? I'm not sure which prince it was. Uh, the king. Uh, they wanted to... That's what they're doing. They're preparing heirs for the throne. Okay? So that's what this... Now you have the postscript. The writer says in verse 17, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Well, if it's Solomon, he's remembered. They have is remembered. We don't know. That's my intention. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever, meaning through song. My purpose is to make your name remembered through this song, this inspired song, and people will remember you and praise you forever and ever. Now, Here's the rest of the story. Whether it's Solomon or whether it's Ahab and Jezebel, they do not rule well, do they? And uh, none of the succeeding kings rules well. They're all oppressors and they're all persecutors of God's prophets. And so finally and eventually they lose their battles and they go into Babylonian captivity and the people begin to yearn for a king that's 
described like this. <laughs> hey, we really do want one that, looked, that operates like this. <laughs> These guys, they were supposed to, but they didn't. And so, before long, uh, they yearned for a king who will rule over Israel the way a king is supposed to. And they begin to take that song and they begin to speak of Jesus in these terms. So when you come to the New Testament, you'll see that the New Testament writers will be borrowing words from the Psalms like this and applying them to Jesus and say, He is the ideal king. He's the one who will rule righteously. He's the one who will win the battles. He's the one that will set up God's kingdom and bring honor to God. He's the one whom God anoints. Uh, like on the day of uh, his baptism, where God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So they begin to apply these scriptures to Jesus. And I'll show you just one example. If you go over to Hebrews chapter 1, this is the, the most famous. And you'll notice immediately these are words taken from Psalm 45. Which tells you how well these people knew their Old Testament, considering they didn't have an Old Testament in their back pocket or in the purse. People didn't have Bibles in those days. That means these Psalms were quoted over and over again, and people knew the Bible, they knew it through memory. And now they apply it to Jesus. And you can see in verse 5 where God says, You're my son, today I've begotten you so on and so forth. Let's talk about Jesus. And then you go down to verse 8. God doesn't talk to angels that way and say, you're my son. But to the son, he says, now look at verse 8. To the son, he says, and so the writer of Hebrews is saying, God says to his son, Jesus Christ, here's what he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Have you ever seen these words before? You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, meaning anointed you to be the king, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And so Jesus is the one who's fairer than all of his companions. And that's why you have songs like, He's the lily of the valley. Why would they say lily of the valley? He's the bright morning star. He's the fairest of... Everybody ought to know. See, that's the message of the kingdom. There's one who has met the expectations of that writer in Psalms 45 and those others. Tempted, just like Ahab was tempted. Tempted, just like Solomon was tempted. Like we're tempted. And yet without sin, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's how a psalm can be understood in its historical context and yet at the same time have the messianic application. We'll pick up with Psalm 46. Lord, we thank you for a psalm that speaks uh, to our hearts. It spoke to the psalmist's heart. He was felt, had a heartfelt feeling toward the king. He yearned that great things would be done. And these kings let down your people. But we have a king. Seated at your right hand, who never lets us down, never fails. Always succeeds. Oh Lord, help us to take these words to heart. Help us 
to look to these words for inspiration. Help us, Lord, to follow the righteous King, Jesus Christ himself. In his name we pray.